Well, as we get going, I want to know who set a New Year's resolution. Come on. Don't be embarrassed. Come on. You thought about it. You journaled. You prayed. You did all this stuff. Okay, one, two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fourteen. Same hand or different hand? Same person, different hand. Okay. Uh, 13 people. All right. But 10% of our group is resolved to take on 2024. Um, here's a statistic that Carl Geyer gave me, and he's a doctor, so you always trust doctors. They're not practicing medicine. They're actually experts in it. Right, Carl? Where are you at? There you are. So he said that 46% of the people, and he found this out. This is not his own statistics. Uh, 46% of the people make resolutions, and they'll break them. So seven of you will fail of the 13, <laughs> just to encourage you this first Friday. Uh, but if you didn't make a resolution, 5% of those people will actually accomplish something. So tough luck for the rest of you, uh, myself included. I think I did it. I don't know. I wrote something down in my journal. So, But if you did or you do make resolutions, uh, I think you put an effort in trying to keep them. And uh, the top five of the top five of the top nine resolutions uh, this year, according to Forbes, have to do with health, mental health, physical health, diet, all those kind of things. It's interesting what people are most focused on and committed to. And I'm sure you've thought about your life, even if you didn't write anything down, you didn't come up with a specific resolution or resolutions. I'm sure you want to evaluate what happened last year and what you anticipate coming this year and what you'd like to accomplish this year. So even if you don't have a specific set of goals, I'm pretty sure that you want to make sure that you're moving forward, you're advancing, you're evaluating your life and you're doing things uh, to improve your life. I want to add one more thing for you. I want to make sure that this year you evaluate your love for the church. The message is called the loveliest place. And I am referring to the church. It comes from a quote by Spurgeon that I'm going to read for us later. But this first Friday of the year, I'd like for us to evaluate if you truly love the church. Now, if this is a place for you to come and just be, and do stuff, and maybe connect with people, but you don't really love the church. And I would hope that after this evening, you'd evaluate your commitment to the church, and if you need to, take certain steps to make sure that this becomes the loveliest place for you. Because on this side of eternity, on this side of heaven, the church is the loveliest place for the Christian. Nothing can be better than the church if the individual approaches it and understands it biblically. In Matthew 16, verse 16, a very famous verse, it says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus said that this is the first mention of the church in the Bible. Jesus' promise in this verse is that the church will be victorious over its foes. There's only one institution that Jesus promises this to. He didn't promise this to a Christian university or a Christian college or a Christian media ministry or a Christian seminary or a Christian school or even a missions agency. Only the church as an entity, as an organism, 
is promised by Jesus that he will protect it and advance it. That is not to say that all of those other Christian institutions are in some way ineffective or deficient or will be undermined or Jesus will just kind of let them do whatever they want to do. Rather, it says that there is a priority in the word of God that is placed on the church. There's a priority in the mind of God and in the commitment of God for the church. And so I'd like us to have that same priority. The church is in the heart, is at the heart of God's plan to rescue humanity from sin. There are over just over a hundred references to the church in the New Testament. And there's two meanings to the church, the word church. One is universal. That is to say, it refers to all believers at all times in the world. But there's also the meaning of a local church, and that is the primary and the most frequent usage and meaning of the word church. In other words, in the New Testament, whenever the word church appears, your default understanding should be, oh, he's talking about some church in some city. And there are 30 different churches that are named in the New Testament. Some cities in the New Testament had multiple churches. Rome had seven churches. Corinth had six churches. So you have multiple churches in various cities. And when you aggregate all that, you have about 30 in the New Testament. Before the year 30 AD, there wasn't a single church in existence. Because Jesus establishes and starts the church. He's the first church planter, you could say that. And he promises to build it and to protect it. But I'd like you to also consider the beauty of the church. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards wrote about the church. There should be a a quote on the screen. The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, that the eternal son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all the immense fountain of condescension, love and grace that was in his heart and that in this way, God might be glorified. And he says elsewhere, and when this end will be fully obtained, the world will come to an end. In other words, the reason God created humanity is to give his son a bride. That's an epic statement coming from Jonathan Edwards. If you know that name, he is considered to be the brightest American theologian of all time from the 1700s. And so as he reflects on the plan of God and the existence of the church, he says the main purpose of the church is to be the bride of Christ. And therefore we enter this gospel story as a love story that the father obtains a bride for his son. He prepares that bride for his son and then the father gives that bride to his son and the son and the bride spend eternity forever. From eternity past, according to Ephesians chapter one, God made the God, the father made this promise to the son, a bride that ultimately would be flawless, no defects, no blemishes, no spots, no wrinkles, perfectly reflecting the glory of the eternal son for eternity. So if that's the overarching gospel story through the lens of a love story, let me give you three reasons 
why all of us should move toward this understanding that the church should be the loveliest place for you. The first is what I just mentioned. It is the bride of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. It's not it is, it's we are humans. We are the bride of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What joy? It doesn't say it in the prior chapter. It doesn't say it after. In the subsequent verse, that's Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I think the answer comes in Revelation chapter 19. You can either look at it in your Bible or you can see it on the screen. In Revelation chapter 19, in verse 7, we see the meeting of the bride and the groom. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. The joy said before him is the joy that's described in Revelation 19, that there should be joy, and it says, and gladness and giving of glory to him, because finally marriage is taking place. The promise that God made to the son in eternity past, that there will be a marriage, a wedding day. There'll be a celebration, the unification of the son and his bride is finally taking place in the future from our standpoint in Revelation chapter 19. And that should give the son and us joy. This is the reason why Jesus went to the cross. This is the reason why Jesus entered Gethsemane and then proceeded to the cross and onto the cross. It wasn't easy. You can read the story in Gethsemane. It solicited pain and weeping and wailing and tears. You can see that in Hebrews 5. You can see it in all the Gospels. But for the joy that was set before him, because he knew that there would be a bride awaiting him on the other side of the cross, he went through it. Dustin Benj wrote a book called The Loveliest Place. It's recent, it's one of the best books written on the church in the last year or so. And this is what he says. God has chosen to display his perfect beauty in his beloved bride by giving her to Christ as a majestic reward for his suffering. That's the joy that is the reference for Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. But it gets better. Go to Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61 we see the prophet Isaiah writing as if the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus ultimately is speaking here. And in Isaiah 61 and in verse one, this is what the Messiah says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. If you know your gospels, you know that in Luke chapter four, Jesus quotes this verse. 
In other words, he says, this is about me. I'm the one who's fulfilling Isaiah 61 verse 1. That is one way we know that this is messianic and this is specifically talking about Jesus. And then look at verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. The I is the same person. It's the Messiah still. I, the Messiah says, will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. So this is fascinating that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, is rejoicing in God the Father. Why is he rejoicing? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. So what brings Jesus joy in verse 10 is the fact that he is being selected by the father to be a savior. He's wearing the garments of salvation. In other words, God has, a, the father has appointed him to be a savior and that gives Jesus joy. So as much as we read about suffering and pain and crying, it doesn't mean that Jesus resisted and found no joy in being a savior. And he says, it's as if I'm a bridegroom. That's the beauty of it all. I'm excited about this because the result in verse 11, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations through Christ. There's salvation that's being offered, not just to the Jews. Romans 9 talks about Jew first and then the Gentile. No, it's to the whole world. Now, we know that promise back in, in Genesis chapter 12, that to Abraham was promised that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So that has been God's promise since the very beginning. But here you see the Messiah taking on this identity of a bridegroom and finding joy in his work as savior for the bride. Keep reading into chapter 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Jesus is saying, I am not going to stop rejoicing. I'm not going to stop singing because Israel will be saved. And you cannot extinguish that salvation at the end of verse 1. The nations will see your righteousness. So now this is an indication for us that verse one is about the ethnic people of God, Israel. Verse two, the nations. There's a distinction here. We're talking about the Gentiles now. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said of you forsaken, nor to your land will it be any longer be said desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and to him your land will be married for as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. I read this because I want you to get a sense of how lovely the people of God are to God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. 
that this is the Messiah exclaiming his joy, his exuberance about a future salvation. This is all prophetic. This all kicks off in Matthew chapter 1, or Luke 1, or John 1, or Mark 1. That's all futuristic from this point. But you can see the Messiah in eternity past, because the plan is from eternity past, understanding what it means for him to be a savior and the bridegroom to a bride in the future. He says, Israel will be saved. It will be as if a love story has just taken place. And it says in verse five, you will be married. God will rejoice over you like a crown, like a diadem. The the language here is epic. It's majestic. It's beautiful. You admire a crown. You go to a museum. So you want to see a bunch of diamonds. That's what we do because it's beautiful. And we recognize beauty like that. God is choosing specific terminology through the writer Isaiah in order to demonstrate the beauty that God finds in his people. This is Israel. Verse one. We're talking about the future salvation of Israel, which will happen according to Zechariah 12.10. They will weep, they will mourn, they will recognize their Savior whom they have pierced. But don't forget the New Testament passages. Because in the New Testament, it's very clear that the Gentiles have been grafted in to the people of God. That's what Romans 9-11 through is all about. God, Romans eleven twenty seven, has not forsaken Israel. He hasn't given up on Israel. God's promises are irrevocable, it says. But God has also brought in the Gentiles. So if you're Russian or Armenian or Asian or whatever ethnicity you are, nationality you might be, as long as you're non-Jew, you're a Gentile. Okay. So I don't know if there's any Jews here, but if you're a Jew, wonderful. If you're not, wonderful. Because we are the people of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is the description of the Gentile pre-Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, remember, this is to the Gentiles. At one point, you were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were godless in this world. And then God brought you in verse 13 by the blood of Christ. In Galatians three twenty nine, it says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. In other words, now you're being integrated into the Abrahamic spiritual lineage, and you also are becoming a son or a daughter of Abraham. You're being brought into the people of God category. Peter in first Peter chapter two says, you were once not a people, but now you are a people of God. So in Isaiah 61, 62, the primary and the direct meaning goes to Israel, the future salvation of Israel. God rejoices over Israel's repentance and salvation. Jesus rejoices in it. Jesus even shows up and says, I've come to the house of Israel. Remember that? When the woman, a woman from Tyre asks him to help her daughter. And he says, well, I came primarily for Israel. But there is what God is doing in his plan of salvation. That is to say, he's bringing the Gentiles into that plan. And according to Luke 15, every single sinner that repents over that repentant sinner, 
there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. That's very precise language. In the presence of the angels of God is God. God is rejoicing. The entire Trinity rejoices every single time a person repents. So now you've got the rejoice language applied to Israel and Isaiah. You've got the rejoice language applied to everyone in Luke chapter 15. And there's many other passages that talk about the joy that God experiences when people repent. Because we are now moving into this phase of the bride being prepared for the groom. If that's God's attitude toward the church, how should we respond? Should we have joy over the church, in the church? Listen to, actually go there, this is a fun passage, Philippians 4. So Philippians uses the word rejoice 16 times. If you want to know a theme, that's the theme. It's all about joy in Christ. And then it flows out in multiple different expressions. But in Philippians 4.1, Paul, towards the end of the letter, says this. My beloved brothers, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. Remember, we just saw the language of joy and crown in Isaiah 61 and 62. God is applying the same language to Israel. Paul is applying the same language to Christians. He says, you bring me joy. It's as if you're my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, beloved. So Paul is able to find joy in the Christian community. And then he says this in verse 2. I am urging Judea and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. So you've got two women in the church in Philippi who couldn't get along. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So joy doesn't have to be tied to perfection. Joy doesn't have to be tied to perfect obedience. In this context, Paul says, you are my joy. And by the way, two of you just cannot get along. It's so bad that he's bringing outside, an outside mediator. You guys know about contracts, right? You mess it up, they'll say, we're going to take you to mediation. Paul is bringing in a mediator and says, these women have such a conflict that they need external mediation to get through. And yet Paul still says, it is a joy to serve in this community. Why? Because... Joy isn't attached, like I just said, to obedience or to, to this happy Christian community, like a commune of sort. It's attached to what? Verse 1, in the Lord. Verse 2, in the Lord. Verse 3, they shared my struggle for the cause of the gospel. Verse 4, in the Lord. Joy is attached to our identity in Christ. It's not attached to our perfection towards Christ's likeness. And I think we have to understand it because whenever you lose or I lose joy in the Christian community, whether it's by serving and stuff happens, it's oftentimes what causes us to lose joy is because we begin to look at somebody's performance or bad performance and it affects us. And what Paul is saying, you can have joy because you understand they're in the Lord. They're in the Lord. 
They're partners for the sake of the gospel. And verse four, their names are written in the book of life. Verse three, rather. Now that elevates the relationships, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you're not just somebody that you click with. You're not just somebody from the same ethnic background. You're not just somebody who's coming from Glendale. There's a lot of you from Glendale. (laughs) That group is growing. You are in a book of life. And so is the person next to you. And that's an identity statement. You belong in eternal heaven. And that should give us joy. So see, Paul says, I also can have joy. And I also can view Christians as the crown, like God does. Because I understand who they are. They are part of the bride of Christ. And as you remember, Revelation 19, it says, John's response to that information was, and I fell down and worshiped. Remember that. One of the reasons we worship is because we understand that we belong to the bride of Christ. That's who we are. And one day we'll celebrate that union with him at the marriage supper of the lamb. You see, Jesus is anticipating that day. And I hope you are as well. And so from Christ's perspective, he looks at the church, which currently has wrinkles and blemishes and defects and often is disobedient and lacking courage, sadly filled with hypocrites. And Jesus loves the church and he appreciates the beauty of the church. Because of what we see in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 25, as Paul gives a charge to husbands and wives, husbands to love their wives, wives to submit to their husbands, then he transitions and he says this in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he may present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So the reason that Jesus loves the church, verse 25, is because he is purifying for himself a bride that ultimately will be wrinkle-free and blemish-free and spotless and glorious. And Paul says, this is a mystery. We cannot fully explain it. As much as we try to explain the relationship that we have with Christ, Paul says, there's a sense of mystery to it. And we have to admit that. And so we have the Bible presenting for us a relationship. The church is the bride. Christ is our groom. And he anticipates the day when we'll be united at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And until that day, according to Ephesians 5, his entire focus is to purify us, to conform us to his likeness. We are his delight. But the Bible also says that we're not just the bride of Christ, we're also the body of Christ. 
We are the body of Christ. This is going to go quick because you're very familiar with it. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, Even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So the analogy that he presents is that the church functions like the body. The head of the body is Christ. He's the head of the church. And in order for the body, our physical bodies, to function well, they have to be healthy. All the parts have to be healthy. That's all he's trying to say here. Every single part in the body, in the church, has to function. It has to operate in order for the body to be healthy. And so in Ephesians 4, he brings in the process of that change and that working together. He says, we are to grow up in all aspects to him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body is fitted together, is held together, but what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In other words, every single person is contributing something unique to the church. You're not irrelevant. You're not replaceable. You're not gratuitous in the process of advancing the church towards Christ likeness. And I think oftentimes we think the opposite. That person has a very similar spiritual gift as I do, and they're doing a better job. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to sit in the back row. I'm just going to kind of hang until somebody invites me to uh, participate in the church, to do ministry in the church, to fulfill my role as a part supplying the food to the body. You know that our bodies can't operate that way. You can't have your left hand say, I'm done for the year. Righty, take over. You can't. It's not going to function. I keep doing this. Imagine I just just squeeze my right hand only. Awkward. Awkward. You understand that from a physical perspective. And if one part of us hurts, the rest of the body is hurting as well. That's all Paul is trying to say here. Now, he gets into, in other passages, into you have a spiritual gift that you need to use. He gets into elements of caring for one another. The body cares for itself when it needs to be healed. So we have to understand that as the body of Christ, we are connected. And you just cannot decapitate yourself. You cannot isolate yourself. You cannot do anything to yourself as a part of the body without hurting the rest of the body. I hope you get that. And we're talking about 2024, five days in. You got 361 days left to either demonstrate with your life that this body of Christ is the loveliest place for you because of how you treat the body, how compassionate you are to other people, the other members of the body, how quick you are to serve the other parts of the body, how quick you are to do whatever it takes to be more effective and to be more helpful, to advance with your spiritual gift to edify the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, the whole point is it's all about edifying the others. 
And I hope that's how you are approaching your role in the church. Well, there's a third and final reason why I'd like you to move toward viewing the church as the loveliest place, and that is the beauty of Christ. The church is also the beauty of Christ. That comes from Ephesians 5, we just read, verse 27. Ultimately, he will present a bride for himself that is holy and blameless, fully perfect. How does that happen? Second Corinthians 3.18 is the answer to that question. We all, Paul says, with an unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror, the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. So the transformation into blamelessness and spotlessness and perfection is taking place by us looking into the face of Christ. And we're shifting, we're trans- being transformed, we're moving from one level of glory, in other words, from one stage of imperfection towards the next stage, which is closer to perfection. Like Lexus, we're pursuing perfection. And so we're moving forward, but how? Second Corinthians 3.18 says, by looking into the mirror, we see the face of Christ. And that gaze and that commitment is what transforms us. And in the next chapter, 3.18 is the last verse of chapter 3. He goes deeper. And this is what he says in verse 4. Christ is the image of God. Verse 6. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, Jesus is the exact representation of God, Hebrews 1. Perfect representation of the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, the glory of God is visible in the face of Christ. So Jesus represents the glory of God. We are looking into the face of Christ and we're being transformed into the glory of Christ. Do you see the chain that Paul has created? Ultimately, what's happening is that we are beginning to reflect the glory of God. We're going to the Trinity now. But the way it happens is that first layer, which is now the second member of the Trinity, the eternal son took on human flesh in order for us to see what God is like in his personality, in his traits, in his characteristics, in his perfections, his attributes, whatever word you want to use. It all refers to the same thing. Who is God? We see that in the face of Christ, we're looking into the face of Christ through scripture, and then we're being transformed into that likeness. But really, what we're doing is we're being transformed into the likeness of God. Not in some theosis way. We're not becoming little gods. We're not becoming divine in that sense. But we are moving closer and closer to reflecting the eternal glory of God as children of God, as the bride of Christ. And Isaiah 43, 7 says, God created man for his glory, to reflect his glory. So the idea of the beauty of the church is that we reflect the beauty of Christ, who is reflecting the beauty of God. That's the beauty of the church. It's not just for our own sake, we are becoming more holy, uh, more nice, more compassionate. No, it's because we are now being transformed to reflect who God is. I like how Paul Tripp says it. Your life 
is much bigger than a good job. An understanding spouse, non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are a part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. That's the greater work of God. And I hope that changes your perspective for 2024, that your participation in the church isn't simply to have a nice Christian community. It's not even simply to use your spiritual gift. It's not even simply to find accountability. It's not because MacArthur is a good preacher. And we have a fantastic music team here. It's because God brought you into the bride of Christ. And now he's using the other members of the bride of Christ to transform you and conform you into a place where you can more precisely reflect the glory of Christ. Looking through fog into city lights isn't the best view of city lights. But as the fog vanishes, you see city lights. All the sin in our lives, it's that fog. And people look and they try to find the glory of Christ in us. And sometimes it's not clear because our sin fogs it up. But the more we look into the face of Christ, the more people see Christ in us. And how cool would it be that on a Friday night, somebody leaves at 11 o'clock and they go home after a conversation with you. And they thought, man, that was so refreshing. Kind of felt like I was reading about the life of Jesus because of the way they talked to me, cared about me, remembered my name. Remembered the prayer request I gave him last week. All those little things of compassion that Jesus expressed, we as his bride should express. So the challenge is get involved in conveying the beauty of Christ. We reflect that beauty. How does it all start? It starts through the blood of Christ. You know that. We were saved Not with precious stones, as Peter says, or gold or silver. Rather, with the precious blood as of a lamb that is unblemished and spotless. The same language that's used about us in Ephesians 5. The blood of Christ. Acts 20. He purchased us with his own blood. That's the beginning point. That's the gospel, simply put. That we believe that Jesus died for our sins. And he was resurrected. The entire Trinity was involved in his resurrection in order to defeat death and to be vindicated by God as the Messiah, the one who actually qualifies to be the high priest, the one who can actually accomplish victory over Satan and sin and temptation and any addiction that you might have, any lust that you struggle with. He's actually powerful enough to overcome. And his uh, resurrection demonstrates that. One of my favorite verses is Romans 4.25. He was handed over for our 
sin and he was resurrected for our justification. There is no justification without the resurrection. It's just another dead Messiah. But he was resurrected. And that is what ultimately gives us hope in life. That's the gospel that we preach. That is accomplished by the blood of Christ. So as you think about 2024, what are some practical takeaways? Well, first of all, respect the church. Jesus loves the church. He died for the church. He is working constantly to purify the church, to make all of us more like himself, to reflect the glory of Christ for eternity, to reflect the glory of the triune God for eternity. Respect the church. Don't mock. Don't, you know, pretend the church isn't important. And then within the church as you serve, do not take the attention off of the groom unto yourself. Richard Sibbs, you guys heard that name from me before. He's a devotional that I was reading last year. And this is what he says. Many make love to the spouse of Christ. Eek. That's a graphic statement. And what he means is that instead of directing people's affections unto Christ, the groom, you steal that affection for yourself. And so you want attention and recognition and applause and accolades for using your spiritual gift. That's drawing affections on yourself, not onto Christ. Secondly, prioritize the church. There's an element of, you kind of have to make time for the church. You have to make time for Friday night. You have to make time for Sunday morning, for Sunday night, for the opportunities that come up here and there to serve the church. Prioritize the church. I'm not saying you have to live here. Don't be a squatter. We're going to evict you. (laughs) But prioritize the church. And this isn't something you do when you have nothing to do that weekend. It also means that you don't just hop around from place to place. You have a commitment. Jesus commits himself through death to the church's bride. You make a commitment. And finally, participate in the church. Participate in the church. Respect it, prioritize it, and participate in it. Hebrews 10 says, don't forget gathering with other Christians. And when you do that, when you come together, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Fellowship is a means of grace, the Puritan said, that helps us in our faithfulness. So if you're struggling with sin, it's isolation isn't going to help. Fellowship is going to help. Prayer helps, the word of God helps, and fellowship helps. So participate in the church, use your spiritual gift as you think about the bride of Christ. And remember, it's God's providence that you're here. That you weren't born in the first century. You weren't born in the 15th or 16th century. As much as you love Reformation, you're like, man, I wish I was in the same time as Luther or Calvin or whatever. Those are fun desires. But in God's perfect providence, you live right now. In the middle of economic, moral, political, and somewhat military chaos in the world. Let's be honest about the news these days. And here you are alive. And here you are in LA. 
And here you are at Grace Church. And here you are in foundation. God's providence planted you here. Now you could bounce, that's fine. But until you do, it's within the providential plan of God that you are here. Don't pray against it. Don't fight it. Don't dream about a different providential plan. Samuel Rutherford said, where you're planted, grow. Grow. That's where you are. So grow there. And then if God chooses to transplant you and place you somewhere else, grow there. And if that happens a few times in your lifetime, keep growing wherever you are planted. That's the recognition that God is over my life in every single detail. He's going to control every single thing that happens to you this year. Every trial and every joyful moment. Every new friendship and every fading friendship. If you move, if you change jobs, if you change friendship circles, if something catastrophic happens in your family or in your career, the providence of God is holding you. He's holding your hand, Psalm 37 says. Do you embrace that from the loving hand of God? And if you do, when you do, one way to get through all that is to find the church as the loveliest place for you. Spurgeon said this, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have found it, have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you haven't. If I had never joined the church till I had found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. In the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it for it would not have been perfect. The church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the loveliest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in a church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. We are the witnesses for Christ as church members, but more beautifully, we are the bride of Christ and he loves you. And my encouragement for this year is that you would love the church as much as he loves you and the church that you're a part of. Lord God, we thank you for the reminder from your word that you died for the church to make it perfect as spotless and blameless. And we are part of that church that you are as excited about revelation 19 as we are, that you also look forward to the marriage supper of the lamb. You said that to your disciples in the last Passover. And until then help us to be faithful, to love your bride to treasure it, to respect it, to prioritize it, to participate in it, to serve it, that it does become the loveliest place for us in this world. And those who are not yet part of your bride, I ask that the Holy Spirit would give them life, 
and help them to understand how lovely it is to be your bride. Whatever happens this year, help us to always embrace it as coming from the providential and personal hand of God. And we know that you love us. Help us to remember that in the moment of difficulty. We pray this to the honor of the entire Trinity and in the name of Jesus. Amen.